for whatever reason, it's not happening. So here we go. I'm going to read this great quote from this guy named Ivan Ilich. Uh, he's sort of a controversial figure. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't really know too much about him other than the fact that this is a great quote that I had come across. Uh, he was a guy that worked in a lot of poor, impoverished parts of the world, Puerto Rico, um, other parts of uh, New York City. He was a follower of Jesus, and he was asked one time about revolution, and, and the question was basically along the lines, what works best, re revolution or other types of violent overthrow? His response was this, revolution can never ultimately change the society. Rather, you must tell a new, powerful story, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. Goes on to say, if you want to change the society, then you have to change and uh, you have to tell an alternative story. There's so much truth to this. In fact, this is one of the things that has come to be known, even within modern marketing worlds, that you, you have to create a new story. You have to communicate a story like the way to life is you've got to have this car, you've got to have this type of clothing, or take this type of pill, and if you engage with these types of things, your life will be fully complete. And so it, it's, a, it's a creation of a story that then a person buy, begins to desire, and then by desiring that, they'll stop at nothing in order to obtain that. So that kind of creates the consumeristic type of mentality that we live in today. So what I want to do right now as we begin to jump into this, I'm going to um, tell a little bit, uh, read the little story, the passage that we're going to be looking at. We've been, again, making our way through this great little letter called Corinthians. I'm going to pick it up at around verse 17, which is where we left off last week. But between 17 and 18, there's really no chapter breaks. In most of your Bibles, you have like a little bit of a chapter break. Um, and the reality is this is just one continual ongoing flow or stream of thought. And it's one of the challenges when we read our Bibles oftentimes and we stop at certain passages or scripture references or paragraph breaks. Um, that are not necessarily there in the original. We, we stop at a train of thought, and then we pick it up you know, next day or next week, or whatever it is, and we've completely forgotten the train of thought that we were just now reading. So what I want to do is I want to pick it up at verse 17, and I'll read down to about verse 25, so you can follow along with me as we read this little section here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's an important thing to just know. I'll make a brief comment on this. Um, what Paul is suggesting here is that anytime you add anything to the death of Jesus, you've actually not created an addition, you've created a subtraction. You don't add to the death of Jesus. You don't add to what Jesus did. If you do, then you will ultimately end up bringing it to no effect. That's what Paul is suggesting here. Verse 18, he says, For the words of the cross... Uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us that are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God. You can underline that if you like. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly that we preach, uh, of what we preach to, the, to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So whoever Jesus is, whatever he has done, it's just this dual reality. It's both the power of God 
and the wisdom of God simultaneously. He goes on to say, verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So we sang about basically the scandalous love of God, or how, how does that song go again? The reckless love of God, right? We sang about kind of the reckless love of God, that we know it's not reckless. That's how it can be oftentimes perceived. But now we're going to talk about the foolishness of God. So again, there's nothing foolish about God, but this is what Paul is doing. He's using rhetoric that would be common language or common vocabulary or common ways of identifying who God is and what God is up to, that God's ways are foolish in comparison. And what he's going to then begin to do is riff off of that and try to bring about some realities. as It's that foolishness that we would look at, the ridiculousness of what we might look at what God has done, that Paul says that's where our salvation, that's where our hope is actually found. And what he's going to do is through rhetoric, he's going to kind of turn the entire argument over on its head. So again, what we looked at by way of just a recap of last week, Paul was suggesting that one of the more common elements that was there in the city of Corinth was this group of people that were called sophists. And they were people that communicated wisdom. Um, We described them as kind of being like part entrepreneur because they made a business practice off of this. Um, We also said that they were very skilled at what they did, which means they had a crowd. They were kind of like celebrity status, uh, very wealthy, uh, very prominent, very well-known people within the first century there in the city of Corinth. And what was happening kind of in the bigger, broader, secular scale is that people were basically finding their own sophist of choice you know, kind of part life coach, part entrepreneur, part celebrity, part rhetorician, part skilled orator, whatever. And so what was happening is people were kind of finding their specific life coach slash sophist and creating kind of a, like, a little bit of a, a, um, a segment or a, within society or a faction around that particular person. And what Paul was saying is that that type of faction, factioning, was actually happening within a church, within a community of God's people. That there were some that were like, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Paul, or, or uh, Cephas, or Peter, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Jesus. And so there are these certain types of factions that were beginning to be formed amongst us. And what Paul is saying is that this is not okay, because, A, I'm not a sophist. I didn't come preaching a rhetorically articulate message to you guys. I didn't come to attract an audience or become a celebrity. Paul's saying, I came to you guys in weakness, in humility to communicate to you uh, the message of the cross. And the reality is what he's going to pack, what we just read, is, is that very message of the cross is utter ridiculousness to the majority of you because it just doesn't make sense. So what we're going to look at now is sort of the bigger picture of the types of stories that we live by. And that's really what I want to focus on because within the passage, Paul points out at least two different types of mainline stories that were kind of prominent within the culture in the day uh, in which he was writing to. Now, I think it's working now. Here we go. That work? Yes, it's working. All right, here we go. I got power now. And you guys can catch me when I fall. How about that? Here we go. All right, so I want to talk about kind of the prevailing storyline of, of the culture that Paul was writing. But before we do that, what I want to really kind of try to ask is the bigger question. Like, why, why do stories that we tell ourselves or, and or believe, why do they matter? And what Paul is going to begin to do now is going to unpack the various types of storylines or plot lines that people believed in his day. He's going to talk about the Greeks. He's going to talk about the Jewish people. 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what are some of the prevailing storylines that we as people living in, in the secularized West that we tell ourselves about God, about life, about suffering, about success, about uh, you know, hurting, uh, peace, chaos, health, wellness, and so on and so forth. We tell ourselves these stories. But why do these stories that we tell ourselves matter? Well, the way I describe it up here is that they help us ultimately make sense of the world in which we live in, um, number one. But then ultimately, they shape us. So whatever story you tell yourself about the world in which you live in, that will ultimately shape the way and the type of person that you become. So let me give you an example of this. If you look at the world and story in which you live in, in which you find yourself, and again, these are ways in which every one of us, we wake up every single day, we're, we're aware of this kind of like dualism that's happening. On the one hand, there's beauty, but at the same time, there's ugliness. There's goodness as well as injustice. There's love, but that's, there's oftentimes betrayal. There's pleasure, and yet there's also incredible suffering. We know that there are those that have and live within abundance, but then there's also people that are literally suffering and starving to death. Uh, we know that there is a sense of order and beauty and creativity, and yet at the same time, there's straight-up chaos in this world. So the big question is, is how do we make sense of this? It, but even more than that, how do we find our way in the midst of this beauty and chaos of abundance and suffering? How do we make our way in the midst of that? And the type of story, the way that you answer that is through a story. You will tell yourself some degree of a story. Well, for example, um, if you tell yourself that it's survival of the fittest, then it creates this storyline that says those who are strong are going to be the ones that come out on top. And so, uh, and how that begins to frame the way that you look at the rest of your life, then will begin to kind of begin to be developed as a result of that. And so what Paul is going to do now, he's going to talk about these types of stories, but ultimately he's going to frame this in the bigger story of what we would look at uh, the scripture itself. So hopefully this will all make sense. So I'm going to look at number one, just basically two things this morning, is we're going to take a look at number one, the story of the prevailing culture around us. And then what I want to do is we'll just make some comments upon this, because what Paul is going to do is, that by way of summary of this, we'll just take a look at verses 22 to 24. Listen to what he says again. The Jews, they demand signs. The Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we, so he's going to make a distinction here. Jews have one way of seeing the world. Greeks, uh, Gentiles, they have another way of seeing the world. But then he goes on to say, but we have a different way of seeing the world. We preach Christ and him crucified. And then he goes on to identify that to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. In other words, it's a point of offense. Jesus is offensive straight up to a, uh, a, a Jew that's living within that particular storyline. To the Gentiles, uh, it's foolishness. The word folly there is the Greek word literally that we get the English word moron from. It's moronic, right? So sometimes Christians are very apologetic. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like straight up accept the fact that you're, you guys, you believe in a resurrected human being. You realize how ridiculous that sounds in a world that's filled with suffering and death? Just accept it. It's okay. That's the world we live in. But it also puts us in a place of having to defend that and talk a little bit about that. But that's the point that Paul is making. Is we shouldn't retract that. We shouldn't feel ashamed as a result of that. But we should actually embrace it and live into it and make sense of it. So that's what Paul is going to go on to say, verse 24. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and I love how he incorporates this, he's both Jews and Greeks are part of this whole process. Like, God does not eliminate or discriminate against Jews or Greeks, but this new humanity that is creating, called the church, is actually comprised of both Jews and Greeks, those that have had their eyes open, those to whom have been delivered the reality of who Jesus ultimately is, those who have bought into 
believed, trusted the story that Paul is about to unpack for them. Uh, all of these, he says, to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So for the main Corinthian human being to whom he's writing, there's two major things that they would look at and put cultural currency in, power and wisdom, right? So the Greco-Roman world, so Romans, what, what were Romans all about? Power, right? Power, Roman power, Roman peace, Roman ability to create peace um, by way of power. But for the Greeks, they were more cultivated and civilized in a sense, so they, they had power, you know, at one point through Alexander the Great. But the point of the matter is, for the most part, they became cultured, where they were about wisdom, sophistry, uh, the wisdom of the Greeks, Plato and Aristotle and some of these others, Socrates. But the point of the matter is, is that he's saying that Jesus actually is the culmination of both power and wisdom. This is who Jesus is. This is an important thing that Paul is going to make. So with that being said, I want to begin to jump in and try to make sense of this as we look at this. So the storyline of the prevailing culture. So number one, he's going to look at the Jews. He says the Jews, they demand signs. And with this, we're going to look at this concept that Jesus actually to them is a stumbling block. Uh, in other words, he's a point of offense. It's a question for you. Does Jesus offend you? When you think about Jesus or who he is and the demands that he makes, does he offend you? Um, because there were those that hear Jesus, they think about Jesus, and were just straight up offended by Jesus. And what he says is that the Jews, they were offended by Jesus. Listen to what Jesus would say in a conversation with the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, it says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these would have been the religious hierarchy, the leaders of, the, uh, of Judaism of his day, um, he says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came to test Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And then Jesus answered them and said, uh, ultimately, an evil and adulterous generation, they seek after a sign, but no sign will be given to you except that which is the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. A lot of scholars believe that what he's referencing is that the sign of Jonah is Jonah was, what, he was three days in the heart of a whale. And this is the sign that Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going to give you any sign. You guys come to me as if I'm some sort of a cosmic magician. I will not be your cosmic magician. It's important for you to know because for many of us, we, we have these distorted ideas as to who Jesus is, as to maybe what God will do for me. So when we approach God kind of like a cosmic vending machine, right, or a cosmic pinata that we just whack through the, through the medium of prayer, God will give us everything we want. God says, I, I, that's not how I will be treated. That's not who I am. I'm not your servant. Though God ironically serves fallen, broken humanity, God says, I will not necessarily just simply cater my existence around you. You are not God. You are a created being. And what Paul, or what Jesus is ultimately saying here, we'll get to another passage in just a second, is that he's saying, look, I'm not going to give you a sign other than this one sign that the Son of Man will die, be in the heart of the earth for three days, and then rise again. And then Secondly, the other passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which, which Paul actually alludes in other writings and throughout the New Testament, this is an important passage. There's this passage in the book of Deuteronomy that says, cursed is the man who is hanged up or hung upon a tree. Uh, and the reference here is that in the minds of any Jew, if you were to die an ignominious death on a tree, then that is representative of the fact that God has cursed you. You are under a curse of God. So this is why this becomes so important to a Jewish mindset. For a Jew, when they were thinking about a Messiah figure, 
All right, so if you were to ask an average Jew on the street in the first century, what do you think about God will do for you by way of a coming king? They would say, well, one day God will send us a king like David who will be a warlord. He will conquer our enemies. He will crush those who oppress us, and he will establish a new kingdom, a new domain, and we will be on his left hand or his right hand, exactly what the disciples assumed Jesus would be. But Jesus completely appended all of their assumptions, because that's what Jesus loves to do, by the way, right? If you follow Jesus for any length of time, if you've ever found yourself kind of questioning, like, what in the world is Jesus doing? That's just his way of overthrowing your expectations of him. But that's a good thing. That shouldn't shock you. It'll, it's a horrible thing if you see yourself as God and demanding answers from whoever this divine being is in the sky, and he doesn't give you the answers. In fact, if, instead of answers, he just throws you into turmoil. That's deeply offensive to our sens- sensibilities. And so what we see here is that this idea of a Messiah who's cursed and then ultimately dead, uh, it ultimately is one that cannot bring deliverance. So when Paul's going around saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that's come to set things right. Oh, and by the way, he died on a cross, rose again. In their mind, all they hear is not the resurrection part. They hear he died on a cross. He died on a tree. And in their minds, they're thinking he's cursed by God. So how is it possible? In their minds, this is a straight up offensive thing to say. It's a stumbling block. So when they hear that, they trip over Jesus. But then secondly, because again, this is where the world view. This is how they made sense of the world. Many of them, not all of them. Of course, there were Jews, like Paul identifies, that had come to believe the Jesus story. And they were part of this family. To them, Jesus became both power, power of salvation, as well as the wisdom of God being unveiled and identified. And then secondly, as we go on to see the next, uh, what am I looking at here? Here we go. I'm still getting used to this, guys. You guys are so patient. Thank you. All right, so the second thing that we see is that uh, the Greeks, and the Greeks, they sought after wisdom. This is how they rolled. This is how they worked. They thought. They were basically focusing on wisdom. Now, the wisdom that they were seeking after was not the godly wisdom that we would see in the Bible, like the type of literature that we see within Scripture, like Proverbs or whatnot, uh, as being wisdom literature. This was a different type of wisdom. This was what uh, would be identified as more of a worldly wisdom. Again, it's a way of making sense of the world in which we live in. It's a story. And this is their attempt to tell that story and to live into that story. And yet what Paul is saying is that even for them, the concept of Jesus was foolishness. It was, it was moronic concepts that were basically being peddled by a Jewish guy like Paul. And so for the Greeks, they emphasized external strength and power of the cross. Ultimately, the, the cross was just straight up utter foolishness. Uh, to them, this display of weakness, the cross was a display of weakness, criminality. Um, it was a display of shame and ultimately failure. So to be able to kind of link Jesus, a dead Messiah or dying Messiah, dying on a cross um, with somehow salvation. To them, they looked at this and thought, how could a a Savior who dies powerlessly on a cross have anything to do with making the world new? This is the whole issue why for Greeks, they saw this as just straight up ridiculous. Foolishness, because it did not fit their paradigm. This is an important thing for us to, again, just pause and think about. What God is doing through Paul is he's completely turning over the stories that they had held dear. 
This is why it's important for us periodically to pause and stop and look at the stories that we believe and ask ourselves, are they sustainable? Do they give us life? Now, again, like I said, every one of us, we have a lens through which we view the world. You can call it a story. And that story will shape you. That story will be the very thing that will help you to make sense of the world around you. And it will also be the very thing that will shape you into the person that you're becoming. That's why it's important that we believe the right stories. So as we go on from this, I want to continue and move on into the last little section up here. It's kind of like a little bonus one. Is I want to look at the concept of Western culture. In other words, where we live today. There's a handful of stories. Here's three of the more popular ones that I would say that you and I, we live into. So if you were to put it this way, for Jews, they lived according to signs. They wanted signs, what Paul says. For the Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And I was thinking, what, this would be kind of a fun like, little object lesson. If we were to define with one word, like one word to define San Luis Obispo culture, right? San Luis Obispo um, County, right? Not just the city, but the county in general. What would be some words? And again, it's kind of like putting it on the spot. But can you think of any words that would maybe define, maybe just one word descriptions that would define the lens through which we as Central Coasters think about our world around us? How, how would you, anybody? Any ideas? I have none, by the way. I just, I'm asking. Anybody? Spiritual, that's a great one. I think it's good, yeah? Chill, chill, chill that's good, yeah. We chill. Anybody else? I do think of, like, pleasure. Educated maybe is another one, right? Slow, educated, a lot of, a lot of educated people. What else? Words by which we would def- define or describe life. I know you guys are the first service, but you got to, like, you got to wake up, man. It's all good. Just kidding. So anyways, chill. Uh, educated, spiritual, uh, maybe fun-loving. Um, the point of the matter is, is that there are definitely words, I think, that would describe or define those who live on the Central Coast. They're lenses by which we see our world and when there's a deviation from it. So, for example, if chill, like take that as an example, is, is what life's all about. What happens when you deal with anxiety now? now? Now where do you go? What do you do now? You got anxiety. Stress has come over you. How do you, yeah, you got to pay your bills. Your car breaks down. Uh, the, the, the guy that, you know, is your landlord, is, is knocking on your door. You have creditors that are coming after you. You've got a hospital bill that you got to pay. Uh, now you have anxiety. You're not living in the chill zone anymore, right? Now what? That's the point. It, at some point, that story begins to break down. It begins to fail you. Now what? And this is where the gospel comes in and presents alternative story. If you want to change your life, you want to change the society, you change the story which they live by. So here's three of them. Number one, pluralism. Pluralism is one of the more common ones. And this is kind of the idea that there's many paths to God, kind of the world in which we live in, that you just kind of choose your religion, whatever it is. If you want to believe in the flying spaghetti monster in the sky, if that works for you, right on. That's awesome. If you want to believe in no God at all, totally fine. If you want to believe in Jehovah as in Jehovah Witness, fine. If you want to believe in Allah, doesn't matter. Believe in any God that you choose, but at some point, uh, each of those narratives or storylines will will fail and break down. Um, Secular humanism is another one of the more prevailing cultural narratives, I would say, that especially we here in San Luis Obispo have adopted, kind of this mindset that basically looks at humanity as being a replacement for a deity or God. We don't really need God. 
because another way to think about this is scientism. The idea of basically we can test everything, everything which is tangible, everything which is visible, is what ultimately rea reality is. So within this construct, there's really not much of a place for anything spiritual because spiritual or spirit is something that's unseen, intangible. You can't test it. You can't taste it. You can't feel it. It's just sort of something that's constructed within the mindset or the psyche of another human being. So therefore, it's dismissed as something that is... Um, maybe either backwards or backwoods or ridiculous or part of an ancient mythological framework. The point of the matter is within secular, secularism or secular humanism, this idea is that we can basically, with the right amount of education and information and money and organizational constructs, we can actually create a system and a society that deeply flourishes. And there are more and more people in today's world, I think, that are kind of beginning to buy into this mindset um, the problem is that this was, for the most part, the mindset in around 19, mid-30s uh, uh, Germany. This was kind of the mindset. Uh, did you know, and I didn't, you know that uh, Germany literally was the leading uh, country in the entire world of technology, of, of wisdom, of knowledge? They literally led the world in all of this. And literally scientists and sociologists and psychologists to this very day are still trying to make sense of what in the world happened? Was this some sort of a weird global virus that infected the minds of human beings that lived in Germany? Or, again, this becomes the reality that somehow, even in the midst of a deeply, strongly progressive culture and society, deep, horrific acts of evil have kind of found their way in. And so I think there's more and more people in today's culture that's deeply influenced by secular humanism that are waking up to the fact that secular humanism ultimately cannot tell a complete story as to how to make sense of the world in which we live in. In other words, it's beginning to fail, and the flaws of its failure are, and how it's beginning to kind of ripple through the hearts and lives of other people is, is leaving people feeling a sense of brokenness and disruption and ruin. And what I would finish with the final thought is in terms of some of the Western culture prevailing storylines is the last one is big mouthful, moralistic, therapeutic deism. So next time you're at a party on a Friday night, hanging out with all your friends, throw this phrase out, you'll sound really smart. Okay, here we go. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. So what does that mean? I would say, and I would argue that this is the prevailing way which most people who call themselves a Christian, this is actually what they really believe. So this might be some of you right now, and I realize this might be deeply offensive for some of you, but you got to listen to it and just hear me out, because I would suggest that for most people in the West, in California, in San Luis Obispo, who call themselves a Christian, this is actually what they really are. Moralistic, Therapeutic, deistic, meaning moralism. They think, hey, the aim of life is to be a really good person. The aim of life is to have a, have a, have a long list of good things to do and a short list of bad things to avoid. Moralism, moralism. It's about being a good person. Uh, therapeutic, meaning God is my personal trainer slash life coach. I go to him whenever I have need of help. It's kind of like my self-help guru. I go to him as if someone who will give me advice and wisdom that will help me progress in my life to be better, to do better, to make wiser investments, to spend my money wisely, to make good, wise choices, to marry the right person, to invest my money in good, solid ways. Meaning that he's, he's there to just be my therapist. God is there to help me through my uh, challenges and uh, hardships and pathologies. That, that's his... That's the aim of God in the universe, and then ultimately deism, meaning that God is, God is a force, 
I have no idea who he is. He's sort of impersonal. He's way out there, but he's ready to come to me as soon as I call upon him, like Aladdin. Right? I just call out to him, and he's there. So we think about God on this term where he's there to serve me, and I'm sort of the, the main deity. One of the ways in which I know that this is the main way which many people tend to think about God in this culture is it goes something like this. When I do not get what I think I deserve, or when life does not go the way that I'm expecting it, I'm mad at this deity because he failed me. And I walk away. That's how you know that really what you have is moralistic, therapeutic deism instead of discipleship to a first century peasant, scholar, theologian, God-man. The story you believe matters. How you think about suffering and pain and abundance and generosity and scarcity and loss and brokenness and sin, it matters. Because we begin to live our lives in accordance with those things. And when the stories that we believe don't sync up with Scripture then at some point it will fail us, it will let us down. When it fails us and lets us down, we either become offended or we just look at the whole thing and we're like, this is moronic, just like the Jews or the Greeks. So the invitation for us is ultimately to look at an entirely different story, which what I want to do is I want to finish with the storyline of the Bible and look at a final couple of things and then we'll wrap this up. So number one is we see that God actually challenges the storyline of the prevailing culture. You should be thankful for this, that God actually pushes back upon the cultural storyline. So as if God says, look, this is bad, this is not healthy, it's destructive to those who bear my image, I'm going to push back upon it. Um, it'd be kind of like if you went to a doctor, and he's like, yep, yep, tumors throughout your whole body. And you're like, okay, what are we going to do? He's like, you know what, I'm not very confrontative and combative, so just go eat a lot of kale and you'll be all good. Like, uh, you're not going to cut them out or do something to reduce them. or sh Like, no, I'm not very confrontative, right? The point of the matter is, you want a doctor that's confrontative to that which is destructive. We have, a, we have a savior, God, that is straight up confrontative to the narratives that are destructive to your soul and mine. It's what he says. It's what Paul says. For the word of the cross, yeah, it's fully, folly, it's foolishness to those that are perishing for all the reasons that we just described. But to those of us that are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God's challenge. I will uh, destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will then thwart. Verse 20, he says, where's the one who is wise? The, the sophist, this is literally the word sophist. Where's the sophist? Where's the you know, entrepreneur, guru, life coach? Uh, skilled rhetorician who's really good at substance, but as far, or, or as, or as um, uh, really good at the, at the way something is communicated as opposed to the substance of it, where is this guy? And then he goes on to say, where is the scribe? Which is uh, the same word that's also used to describe the religious leaders within Judaism. The scribe, where's the scribe? Where's the one that knows the books? The skilled, learned, educated human being. So a lot of times people look at what Paul is suggesting here. They think that what Paul is suggesting is that we shouldn't worry about being articulate or educated, nothing really could be further from the truth. And sometimes Christians take this and like create some weird things like God doesn't really 
care about being educated or, you know, I, I've even seen some anti-educational, like, uh, tropes kind of come from this type of topic as well. And that's, that's not at all what, what's going on here. What, what, what Paul is ultimately bringing it back to is like, look, where's the scribe? Where's the wisdom communicated? Where is the one that knows and understands information? And he says, where's the debater? Where's the one that's able to articulate all this stuff? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The big point is this. Be educated. It's totally fine. But at the end of the day, look at the fact that the, the reason why you're able to be educated is because God gave you a mind to be educated. You live in a day and an age where you have money to pay for an educated ed education, right? Uh, that you live in a culture and society that offers that. Like, you did not create any of this context for that. All of it is a gift from God. So if you're going to be educated, if you're going to find yourself tapping into wisdom, just recognize who the ultimate true source of capital W wisdom is. And it's what Paul says. He says, because at the end of the day, if we look at our knowledge or our wisdom or our effort or our abilities and say that these are the things that bring my life definition and the contours of my life that make me matter, that give me some degree of approval in the world standing, Paul says at some point that storyline will fail you. Because what Paul's going to end up going on to say is that not many of you are noble, not many of you are wise, but as you'll see next week, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So who does God choose? Not those that have been born into some skill level that they didn't, like, earn. But he's saying that God just tends to show grace upon whomever he chooses to show grace upon. God's indiscriminate. He'll show grace upon educated people. He'll show grace upon foolish people. He'll show grace on, upon the aristocracy. He'll show grace upon those that have completely, you know, failed first grade. God doesn't care to whom he'll show grace. And again, this is where to the educated person, they would look at that and be like, well, that's foolish. Why would you show such favor and kindness to somebody that doesn't deserve it? But that's the point. God gives his gift of life and goodness and wholeness to those who don't deserve it. Because none of us deserve it. Next, we're going to see that as Paul goes on to make the final point. As he says, God challenges, uh, ultimately, God then offers his scandalous grace. And this is where he goes on to say, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is actually wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I think what Paul is trying to make a point there at the very end is that, look, even God, if God can even if can imagine God having a bad day, which he doesn't have, by the way, if God had a bad day, um, God, when, when God was at his weakest, which he's not able to be, even if God was at his weakest, his weakest point is still stronger than a strong human being. His most foolish thing is even more wiser than the wisest human being. Uh, when God's at the bottom of his game, which obviously he, he doesn't like, he's not like us, his whole point is that God will always come out on top because that's who God is. And then he makes his point, for since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The important point for Paul to make is that we cannot know God on our own. This is what the theologians would describe as revelation. Like God reveals himself to you. This shouldn't be shocking. This shouldn't be scandalous. But this is simply the way it is. So let's give me, let me give you an example. Some of you guys 
you know, it's kind of funny. You can hear someone who preaches a lot and tend to think that you know them pretty well. I remember I used to work at a radio broadcast ministry, and uh, the guy that I was recording all those Bible study cassette tapes back in the day when there were these things called cassette tapes. They have no idea what that is, but they realize that most of you are like, cassette tape? What is a cassette tape? Right? Um, ask your dad. But the point of the matter is, is that people would actually have this idea in their mind, like, because they've listened to hours and hours and hours of this guy's teaching, they thought that they fully knew him. But they really didn't know him. Um, and the, the point of the matter is, is that you might think that you know somebody, but until somebody sits down with you and then begins to open up their heart and tell you what's really going on, you really don't know that person. I mean, you can be married to someone. I mean, I'm going on 29 years of marriage. And I still feel like I'm getting to know my wife. There's still things about both of us that we're learning about each other because you don't just simply dump every bit of information about yourself that first initial meeting. You cannot do that because you don't even know yourself fully. But as time goes on, as life progresses, as you grow as a human being, as you begin to discover the nuances of your own heart and nuances of, the, of their life, you begin to work together through these circumstances and knowledge and revelation begins to take place between the two of you. And this is exactly the way that it is with God. God reveals himself to us. He shows himself to us. And unless God reveals himself, we really can't know God. And he's saying that God has chosen by way of grace, a scandalous grace. Again, it's scandalous in the sense of, like, we have this meritocracy in which we live in, which we, the idea is that we, we, we think that our acceptance in society is based upon what you can merit, what you can do, performance, right? Some of us are, like, locked into that worldview, like, it's about how well I perform. And what he's saying with the gospel is it's the exact opposite. It's one of the reasons why you can, by way of performance, be an absolute horrible human being, and yet God can show grace to you. God can still demonstrate his love and kindness and affection to you. God accepts you as you are, not to leave you as you are, but to transform you, to reshape you by way of his presence. And through that act, transformation begins to happen. You become a new person as you begin to imbibe and absorb the truth of the gospel, the storyline that we're talking about here. God begins to reshape you. What I want to do right now is I want to finish actually with a little video from the people from the Bible Project on the story of the gospel. Because this is what we're talking about ultimately at the end of the day is the idea of the gospel. This is what Paul is promoting. He identifies it as the cross of Christ, right, the death of Jesus. He describes it as the power of God, as the wisdom of God. But what he's talking about, these are all synonymous terms to describe what we would describe as the gospel, the good news that God has done something for humanity as broken, as flawed, as messed up, as ruined as we are in order to transform and to reshape our lives and to put us into a brand new story. What we would say, restore, restoreed our lives into something different to live out of a whole new way of understanding life around us. So let's go ahead and take a look at this video, and then the team will come on up and we'll wrap it up. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. 
All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger beser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings, whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. So as we close, but we all stand, and I want to finish just with a thought, because we live in a world that the scripture tells us is actually one in which God actually forgives his enemies. What type of an impact ought that have upon those who claim to follow him who have to deal with enemies? How ought we to treat those who mistreat us? If we live in a world 
in which God actually shows radical generosity to those who don't deserve radical generosity, then that begins to reshape how we think about radical generosity. We live in a world that says that death is not the ultimate end, resurrection is. Then what does that say about our current life and the relationships that we have and the circumstances that we find ourselves in that have been marred by death and all of its friends? What does that say about hope in the midst of death scenarios that we find ourselves in the midst of? It's a way of rescripting, rethinking our lives in light of the gospel that's true. Because like I said, we all live according to a story. Every one of us in this room right here have a story that we live by. The question is, is the story that you're living by ultimately sustainable for life throughout all eternity? Or is it one that at some point will fail you, and when it fails, you will break? And the invitation for you now is to believe this story. So I want to finish with two practices, like actual steps, things that we can do. Number one is pray. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, I want to invite you, as soon as we begin to sing, to just come to the front. I want to pray for you. I will be up in the front. We'll have some leaders that will be up in the front. This is a way for you to step out of the story. So when you walk from your seat, it's a way of saying, I'm leaving behind the story that I lived into up until this moment that I walked into this room. And I want to enter into a new story. I want to pray for you. So number one, the act of being prayed for. Number two, the act of taking the bread and the cup. The bread and the cup is a way to remind us we actually live in the story of the resurrected king. To live life differently. All that which is old is done away with. All that which is new is beginning to be unfolded. So choose your practice. Do both. Live into it. The invitation is for you. I will pray, and as I pray, I'm going to invite you right now to make your way to the front. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We turn our hearts over to you now, and we invite you, Jesus, to reshape us into new people.